Now, I was trying to work out if this is one of the hardest passages in the Bible in our, for our contemporary ears, but then I remembered that Jesus said plenty of things that were equally as tough as this, and Ezekiel says other hard things as well. The, the one common thing between those three authors is that they're aiming uh, full square at religious leaders. They're the ones who get the biggest brunt of God's uh, wrath and criticism. And uh, so it's quite tough uh, being a religious leader, standing up the front going, oh my goodness me. Because you know what happens when you point with a finger at someone? You point three. Essentially, the theme is watch out for people who will, as Paul puts it elsewhere, tell you whatever your itching ears want to hear. And in an era where you can select the podcast that makes you feel really good or the worship music that makes you really happy, um, it's very tempting to gather yourself around someone who makes you just feel better about you as you are. And down through the ages, there's been a temptation for profit, for money, or for than what God wants. And there was a weird, charismatic person on the leadership team there. I probably wouldn't think of her as that weird, but at the time, age 17, she freaked me out completely. She was one of those people who couldn't stand up to sing songs. She had to be on her knees with her hands above her head and shaking while she was doing it. Just one of those, you know, sort of slightly strange people. And as she got up one time and said, junk food, junk food. And it was like, God's people are just eating junk food. And actually, as I've pondered through my life and ministry and observed other people's, I've noted how incredibly tempting it is to offer junk food. You know, it's, you know, you drive into Brentford and there's a big neon flashing, I won't say what color of the M it is on the side, and it's, shall I just go in for that quick fix? And you, you have it. And you feel sort of slightly lost and empty afterwards, don't you? Like you've let down the environment, the world, and your stomach all in one go. <laughs> or something just full of sugar that just sort of gets you going <laughs> for a few minutes. And you end up with a great headache a few hours later. And there's something in us that's just inclined to go for the junk food and go for stuff that makes us feel better. Uh, let's look at what uh, Peter says about this, he, he begins by contrasting the Old Testament era. And he says, look, there were false prophets in the time of the Old Testament. The scriptures, as we saw in chapter, chapter 1, the second half, are ones that are completely reliable. But there were also false prophets around in that era. And now, in the church era, there will be things that are completely reliable, like this book that's being written to you here, but there will also be others who introduce what he calls destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign lords who brought them. And they will bring destruction upon themselves. Now, later on in the chapter, we find out what their core message is. And I have to say, I was slightly horrified when I read this because it's the core message that I preached last week down at Christchurch Woking. Um, and it was a lovely evening. We had a great time. And my core message was freedom. It was for freedom that Christ has set us free. And their core message was also freedom. And I was like, oh my goodness me, am I a false teacher? Have I got this wrong when I was trying to exposit Galatians 3 uh, down at Woking? But what they're calling freedom isn't what Paul calls freedom in Galatians. 
what they're calling freedom is more like what our culture calls freedom. They're saying, if Jesus sets you free, you can pretty much do what you like. Oh, and by the way, so can I. And we can see extremes of this when you map religious history, can't you? The cult leader who persuades a whole bunch of women that to get true freedom, they need to explore their sexuality with him. And we know these stories, don't they? They're horrific stories, depraved stories, terrible stories. And you can park those and go, oh, that's way off there. That would never happen in a real church. That's just for the, the cults, the sex, the out there places. But Peter's absolutely sure that such people as these will always, always be around, even in the true church of God. And so he's saying you've got to watch out for those who follow depraved conducts and bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. And of course, one of the ways that we do preaching nowadays is we tell a lot of stories. And they're normally the bits where you sit up and pay attention, aren't they? You know, when I started, when I went down to Christchurch Woking last week, you sort of sat up a bit. When I was on Scripture Unit, you sort of sat up a bit. That's a bit more interesting. That's a bit more personal, Richard. Stop just quoting the Bible at me. Tell me a story. And there's something about us that loves a good story. Jesus was a great storyteller. But have you noticed, if you've read through the New Testament, how few times Peter or Paul or John tell you their own great hero stories? You don't often get Paul go, by the way, do you remember the time when I planted a church all by myself? Or you don't get him telling the story of how he put his hands into a fire and wasn't burnt or got bit by a snake and wasn't killed. You don't hear Peter in this book telling the story of how his shadow healed people. You don't hear John boasting about his privileged special relationship with the Savior. They're not trying to commend themselves to the church. They're always trying to commend Christ. But those who might take you down a wrong angle are much more likely to tell you about their own hero experiences. And we have to be a bit careful of those. It might not be wrong. It might be helpful. But just be a little bit wary because there may be greed hanging over. Now... Once you get to verse 4 in this passage, you begin to get into territory that feels very uncomfortable for nice, cozy, postmodern Anglican Christians. Because verse after verse, there is stuff about hell and judgment and, uh, and condemnation and some of the nastiest language used about anyone, uh, again, since things that Jesus said in the Gospels. It begins by giving you three anecdotes about historic judgment. Uh, the first one is one we know very little about. It's the story of the fall of the angels from heaven. Now, there's very little in the Bible that helps us hold this whole thing together. Uh, one of the suggestions, piecing together Old Testament prophecies and this and a few things Jesus said about, I saw Satan fall from heaven, is that possibly at one time a third of the angels fell uh, from heaven because of their rebellion against God. And two-thirds of the angels stay. And one of the great angels was uh, the angel of light, 
Lucifer, who we now call the deceiver or Satan. And the other two archangels were Michael and Gabriel. They're the only ones that we sort of know to have that sort of status in the scriptures. And God says that God did not spare angels when they sinned, but he sent them to hell and put them in darkness to be held for judgment. And then it moves on straight away to say that God didn't spare the ancient world when it sinned, but he sent a flood and destroyed what was evil, save for the one preacher of righteousness, which was Noah and his family. And it didn't spare Sodom and Gomorrah for all of its sins, which were legion, all sorts of sins, from what it says in Ezekiel about they didn't care for the poor and oppressed them, to what it says in Genesis about how they were going to inflict a, a mass homosexual rape on people there. It was a depraved and evil place, and God wouldn't tolerate it. And so he brought judgment on these things. But he waited a long time in both of the cases that involved humanity. And what Peter's saying is, look, if you look back at history, you can see what the character of God is. Do not presume, do not presume that there will be no judgment to come. Just because it's not coming right now doesn't mean that God is overlooking the ignorance, the deception, the lies, the stealing, the injustice, the oppression, the warfare, the raping. He's not going to leave it unpunished forever. His character is of justice. And I've talked about this before with you, that what sort of God would he be if he was going to sweep all that stuff under the carpet? Would he really be worthy of worship? What would we think of our own judicial system? I mean, if every time someone went to trial, Judge Dennis and his colleagues just sort of went, oh, never mind. <laughs> there, there, try again. The country would be an anarchy, wouldn't it? Absolute anarchy. And God is a God of justice. And one of the reasons that the New Testament teaches that we can forgive our enemies, that we can let people off the hook, is because the maths will one day add up. That judgment will come on those who have done what is wrong. Judgment will come. And you know the gospel of Jesus, don't you? You know that judgment should come on you as well because we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. None of us are better than others and can just go, whoa, I'm fine. It's only because Jesus stands in the gap for us that any of us get out of jail free on this. But judgment will come. And it says in verse 10, this is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the flesh and despise authority. Now, if you had to say there are two things in our contemporary world that looks pretty high up on the list of sort of sins, following the corrupt desires of the flesh and despising authority, feel like ones that we could tick off, don't they? We're not very good with authority now in our, our world, are we? We don't like being told what to do. And we have a right, don't we? A human right 
to do things our own way, to follow our own pleasures, to do whatever we want. That's my right. And God says, well, be careful, watch out. Because that's not how he sees the world. He says, be careful also of preachers who take on more than they can chew. This is uh, the second half of verse 10. He says, they're bold and arrogant. They're not afraid to heap abuse on celestial beings. Now, one of the magic shows of being up the front is you can say what you like and get away with it if people believe you. And if someone says, I'm coming against this or that spirit and I'm binding the prince of principalities over this area or something like that, well, you know, maybe they are, maybe they aren't. You can't see, can you? And it says in the, in the parallel um, chapter to this in the book of Jude, it says, even Michael the archangel, when he comes up against Satan, refused to take him on in his own authority and power. He says, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. He calls on a higher authority in order to rebuke the demonic, the devil. He doesn't go, I do this in name. And he's saying that the, those who've got carried away in their own boldness and arrogance will start telling satanic beings or celestial beings where to go on their own merit and strength. He's saying, careful. There's an arrogance to that could lead you into a mighty trap. Now, this is slightly advanced class spiritual warfare, so if this is all new to you, uh, come and chat to me about it from the beginnings, but just as a little moment for us, there is a time where every Christian gets to tell Satan or demons where to go. When's that? When he's attacking you one-on-one. You're told to stand firm. When is Satan attacking you? You're sitting there watching TV. The night's coming later and later. You're like, oh, I just want to turn the channel to that pornographic image that I know I'm going to find if I keep flicking. And that's the point you go, go away, Satan. You're at work and you see uh, another woman's husband. And you're like, oh, he looks nice. And you go, get away from me, Satan. I don't want that thought in there. You get your tax returns, and it's like, oh, I could just fudge this, that, and the other. And that thought pops, and you go, go away, Satan. And you're using a short sword of the word of God to get rid of Satan. And that's what you do. That's spiritual warfare as given to us. We have authority when he attacks us to say, go away. Very simple, very straightforward. What we don't have is freedom and rights to go roaming around going, I'm destroying you in the name of Jesus, or just on my own right. Because what happens is the same as happens to some people in Acts. Eventually the demons will pounce on you, destroy you, and they'll say, I never knew who you were. I know who Jesus is, I know who Paul is, I know who Peter is. But you're just a muppet, and I'm going to eat you for breakfast. So we have to be very careful, particularly if you've been in very charismatic circles, to pay heed to this very, very clear warning in uh, 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 10 through 12. Don't be like an unreasoning animal, a creature of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed, because otherwise, like an animal, you'll be perish. And then just to uh, wind up this denunciation of false teachers, we've got two more paragraphs. You'll see them trying to fight against demonic or celestial beings, claiming more authority than they really have. 
you'll see them giving great testimony about themselves and their own amazing powers. But if you look under the hood, you'll see that their lives don't add up the way they should do. There's a sensuality about them. They're trying to seduce the unstable. It might be sex. It might be money. But look out for anyone on a power trip because they're really dangerous. And friends, down through the ages, the real church of God has been littered <laughs> with these people. And it's one of those things where I heard Justin Welby speak just last week. He was saying, you can be really quite holy, but still have very clay-ridden feet. You can look like you're standing and then suddenly fall over in a moment. Character takes a lifetime to build up and can be lost in an instant. So be careful of anyone who seems on a power trip and in it for themselves, however charismatic, brilliant, beautiful they may be. They are just like springs without water. Imagine that you're wandering through a desert. You see an oasis ahead of you. You're like, oh, I'm so needy today. I really need living water. And you come to this person, this prophet, this false teacher. And all you've had is the dregs of a can of Diet Coke. And you're on your face again before you know it. Be careful of what looks glamorous, but isn't really. They're like mists driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them. There's boastful words, lustful desires. They're enticing people to depravity. They're claiming they can give people freedom, but they can't. And here's the really tough bit in here. And it's really tough for any of you who preach from time to time. Because if you are from what they call the Calvinist school, uh, what you would say is that these people were never really saved at all. They never really knew Jesus, and that's how they could fool this hard and this far. But I'm not sure that the words of the passage sustain that, because look at verse 20. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and are overcome... They are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It suggests that at the very least, some of the people who are now called false teachers may have had a real experience of God, a real relationship with God, a real sense of making him Lord of their lives. But stuff crept in, and they lost it. They lost the spark, they lost the fire, they lost their purpose. It's scary, isn't it? Maybe you know people like that in your life. You can lament for them. You can cry over them. You can grieve over them. They should have been the one who fed us. And they didn't. It begins easily, friends. It's hard when you're up the front here and, you know, sometimes you see people engaged and switched on. Sometimes you see people turning off. Sometimes you see people walk away and, and never come back. And you sort of think, well, maybe if I made it a bit more nice, <laughs> they'd come along. And maybe if I got a better hairstyle, they would tolerate staring at me for 20 minutes on a Sunday. 
Maybe if we put on a better smoke machine and lights display and all the rest of it. And maybe I should stop saying those things that I really felt God wanted me to say. But people in the church told me to stop saying. It's easy for a congregation to make a minister into a false teacher. <laughs> it sort of goes two ways. There's a dual responsibility when it comes to teaching in the church. We have to be hungry, self-feeding, looking at the word for ourselves, going, are you sure that stacks up? Checking it out in our small groups. We have to be knowledgeable. A friend of mine has recently finished a doctorate in worship songs in, in the States. He studied three churches. And he, he asked people in the three churches, what songs do you most like? And then he analyzed them. Guess what? Guess what people like? Songs about themselves. Songs that make them feel good. Songs that tell them they're wonderful and brilliant and amazing. It's not rocket science, is it? But God wants to give us more than platitudes. He wants to give us truth. And truth sets us free. One of the most amazing things for me about knowing God and being known by God personally is this. He really knows me. He knows when I'm swearing on the inside. He knows when my heart is black and dark. He knows when my eyes are going the wrong way. He knows where my feet are going the wrong way. He knows everything I will ever do wrong and everything I have ever done wrong. And yet he loves me and died for me. And he loves me enough to not let me carry on going the same miserable way. And not take other people in that direction. That's the God we serve. He's an intervening God who intervenes with people who hated him by their actions. And brings life to them when they didn't deserve it. There's not a single person here in this room who deserves God's love. Newsflash. <laughs> you have to be quite new to church to have not got that message. You don't deserve it. He is not obligated to love you. He is not obligated to meet your needs in any way. You're the creature. He's the creator. He knows every dark and abysmal thing that you've ever thought, said, or done. And he calls you on it and says, come on, repent. There's reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they could be white as snow. And he says, let's walk in truth. Time to be really free. As the passage says, whatever you obey, you become a slave to Either you're a slave to your own flesh and your evil desires and your bank account and your worries and your fears, or you're a slave to Jesus. And that is where real freedom comes.